1: Because State Farm agents are small business owners, too, living and working in your community. That means they know what it takes to help you personalize your policies for your small business needs. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there.
2: Talk to your local agent today.
0: From CAFE, welcome to Stay Tuned. I'm Preet Barara.
2: Some people will simply will not be converted. And... It's good to create a home and the Democratic Party has such a broad tent, but what I have really failed to see is an expansion of that electoral base of the people who marched for George Floyd, the people who marched for, uh, for gun reform, for the people who have marched for the Women's March. We have not seen that broadening of that base and we need them.
0: That's Maria Teresa Kumar, She's the founding president and CEO of Voto Latino, a grassroots organization dedicated to voter registration and engagement. This week, our focus is on politics and the Democratic National Convention, the move to virtual, the rousing address by Michelle Obama, the inclusion of disenchanted Republicans, and the rebukes of President Trump's handling of the pandemic, our racial reckoning, immigration, and more. Maria joins me to help us put all of this into context. Her organization, Voto Latino, has already registered over 200,000 voters for the 2020 election cycle and is aiming for a half million new voters by November. Then Martha S. Jones, a history professor at Johns Hopkins University and the author of Vanguard, How Black Women Broke Barriers, Won the Vote, and Insisted on Equality for All, joins us for a special segment marking the centennial of the 19th Amendment's ratification. That's coming up. Stay tuned. Voto Latino president and CEO Maria Teresa Kumar has been working for almost 20 years to register Latino voters and raise political awareness across the United States. She brings her expertise to the show for a look at the Democratic National Convention, and we also talk about the larger trends we're seeing in the Democratic Party during this pivotal election cycle. Maria Teresa Kumar, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Preet. It's great to have you. We are So we are midway through, we're taping this on Wednesday morning, Midway through the Democratic National Convention, which, as everyone in the world has pointed out, is a little bit different this year. And the Republican National Convention will also be different. You've been to a number of conventions. What are we, uh, what are you missing? Are you missing going to the live event?
2: I mean, This is the thing. You know, what has caught our attention as our lives work is politics and the machinations of how it happens and this is every four years where, you know, people like us who are very wonky and, uh, you know, I, I self-proclaimed ner- nerdy. We go and we meet our tribe every four years and we come together and we celebrate democracy and the people behind the scenes. And we thank the volunteers and we thank the people that make our country work. And it is, for me, one of the few times that... I appreciate and enjoy and look forward to spending time again with my tribe that I see every four years. And that's missing. Uh, but that said, the roll call that they did yesterday uh, that was so expansive, everything from you know our 50 states to our territories, also to me was incredibly touching because it reminded us what makes us so different from the Republican Party, but also our richness and our belief in our democratic systems. And that piece, that essence, that flavor of all of these individuals coming uh, from different areas and congregating in this case, you know, would have been Milwaukee, that element would have been missed. And I think that they did such a beautiful job of showing our tapestry. And now my hope is, is that that tapestry will reflect it in the agenda that they espouse because we we need to do a lot of big work coming out of COVID for the for for America
0: Yes, we do. You, you use an interesting word, at least to my ear. You said you go to the convention to see your tribe. And in recent times, tribe and tribalism have a sort of negative connotation. We're all sort of too isolated and in our silos. You, you don't think tribe is a bad word.
2: No, it's, it's, in this case, it's, you know, some people are really into Comic-Con. They go to Comic-Con because they want to see their tribe, right? <laughs> right. <laughs> like my, right. my Comic-Con sadly, is, le- it, you know, is less flourishy. It happens to be the Democratic convention. That's how nerdy I am. <laughs> right.
0: I gotcha. I had one other question, though. My kids were asking me yesterday, do you know how it is determined who from each state gets to speak in the roll call? Because sometimes it was an ordinary person and sometimes it was Senator Klobuchar. How does that, how does that get determined?
2: It is a lot of lobbying and jockeying. Uh, I can tell you, uh, it's <laughs> not you. as it's not as pretty as it seems. <laughs> as I like to, it's an opportunity uh, for the party to demonstrate, like the elevator worker. Right? She is. She had such a beautiful personal story of her interaction with Joe Biden. Sometimes it is a union worker, and it is a constituency that they really need to mobilize. And sometimes it's a rising star that you may never heard of. Um, and then sometimes it's commemoratory. So, I, one of my favorites was in the in Philadelphia, where it was a woman. I think she's you know she was over 100 years old, and she cast the ballot for uh, representing Arizona, and there was such pageantry around it uh, because it was a symbolism that she was casting a vote for a woman when she could remember the suffragist movement, and it was just powerful. Madam Secretary. Arizona cast, 34 votes
3: for Senator Sanders. And 51 votes for the next president of the United States of America, Hillary Rodham
2: Clinton. And that is something that it is, you know, a bit of symbolism, a bit of... I am, you know, I, I am the politician and I am the le- next leader of the free world. And some of it is just some great, beautiful decency, so. Right.
0: So there's also controversy and obviously behind the scenes lobbying for who gets to speak uh, and who doesn't and how long their speeches are. And we'll get to some of the, I guess, mild controversies within the tribe on that.
2: Mm-hmm. <laughs> is this going to be, I'm going to be labeled forever as part of this one that said the tribe. And No, <laughs> no, 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 no,
0: you explain. Well, I, get, I have these people on all the time it just, it just struck my ear because you have people all the time talking about tribalism and talking about, you know, I, I've i asked people, I've asked Republicans from time to time why they can't say certain things, like why they can't say Black Lives Matter. And sometimes the response comes back, well, you know, we all are sort of adhering to our tribes and it's tribalism, which is an odd response. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But it's usually, when it's used by certain kinds of people, used as an excuse for why they're doing something that's not the right thing. You know? Yeah. So I find that kind of interesting. No, I think that's fair. Let's talk about the one, I think, clearly avowed breakthrough performance, if you want to use that word, at the convention, Michelle Obama. Your reaction, please.
2: She was succinct. She was clear. I think the biggest challenge of the last four years for myself and I and I would say for you, Preet, is to remind the American people that what is happening is not only not normal, but gravely dangerous, and sounding that alarm to the best of our abilities. and. Not everyone really being cognizant of the clear and present danger that Trump represents, not just to Americans, but I, I, I deeply believe in our world stability. And she was very clear on saying that if you think it's worse, it could only get more worse if he stays in office. And I think that was one of the most poignant moments because everybody tries to mince around it, and she didn't. She was very direct. But then she also provided us, and this is a, I think that we need to create more, more contrast. She provided us with hope and she provided, and hope is so necessary right now. Some people try to call that Pollyannish, but hope is so necessary right now when you are an essential worker and you feel like your life is not working and you've lost a loved one and you're trying to juggle your your family, be a good parent, making sure that your child is having not just enough to eat, but also getting educated while having to get up in the morning and leave, maybe with or without childcare at home. And so she was able to remind us of what happens when we do come together. And she is able to remind us of what happens of our audacious possibility when we're willing to to think big.
0: Do you think she was providing a good roadmap and model for how to run against Donald Trump? I noted, and other people noted, that she didn't spend any time that I can recall referring to Donald Trump as authoritarian or despotic or any of those kinds of criticisms. She mostly spent her time talking about how incompetent he was, and that's where the danger is. He didn't He just wasn't up to the job. And it is what it is. Do you think that's the better tack than what some people
2: do? The reason that she did that is that she's trying to persuade white suburban moms. And you and I could look at other authoritarian regimes, but that language, and I've used it in the past, but that language sounds so extreme to a fellow American that may have not experienced or witnessed or knows of what that kind of regime looks like but the way she were a- able to frame it of uh- He's kind of a crappy boss who doesn't know what he's doing. Actually, I think <laughs> right. oh, everybody can relate. Everyone to that. Everyone can identify right? like, with, that. Yes, you yes. know. So, and I think that, and I think that was my
0: my team. My team right now is related. To that.
2: <laughs> They're all nodding. I'm joking. Uh, so, I think that that's that's what she was, and that lands differently, right? It doesn't seem as extreme, even though, again, I do think that in four years he has undermined our institutions and our credibility in fundamental ways. That's going to take years to recover. And to root out, because I think that what he has put into these different departments of, uh, whether it's Homeland Security, whether it's the Department of Justice, it is a, it, whether it's the Interior Department, it is elements of corruption that is like a cancer. And once a cancer metastasizes, it's really hard to root out. And quite frankly, it's those cancers of, of the decay of an institution of why so many immigrants left their their countries. Because we can't do, we get taxed for doing basic business transactions, if that makes sense. And I don't think the American people quite understand or appreciate how special we are in many ways, because we have been, we've fought for corruption for so long, we deeply believe that it is anti-American. And now we have a president who's the antithesis of that, who actually embraces it and celebrates it. And for a lot of Americans, it's cognitive dissidence to realize how teetering we are, uh... And our democracy. And part of it is just lack of exposure. So what I think what she did there was that she was able to say, again, she was able to land it in a way that wasn't as, didn't seem to say sensationalized in any way, even though what he is demonstrating, what he is doing and the route he is taking is absolutely along the lines of authoritarianism and fascism. To be able to go into Washington, to Lafayette Park and turn the national guard and police force against pro- peaceful protesters because he wanted to cross cross a street and pick up a Bible that wasn't even his uh, speaks to who he is, right?
0: There's something else that she addressed that really struck me, and I've been thinking about it since she spoke. It's an extended quote, and I want to get your reaction. She said, "Quote: Over the past four years, a lot of people have asked me when others are going so low, does going high still really work?
3: My answer: Going high is the only thing that works. Because when we go low, when we use those same tactics of degrading and dehumanizing others, we just become part of the ugly noise that's drowning out everything else. We degrade ourselves. We degrade the very causes for which we fight. But let's be
1: clear. Going high does not mean putting on a smile and saying
3: nice things when confronted by viciousness and cruelty. Going high means taking the harder path.
0: What do you make of that? And why do you think she felt the need to sort of expand upon and clarify what she said four years ago?
2: Because I think that we are, she's basically telling us not to be pushovers, right? That going high is being very clear-eyed on what the stakes are. And that if we don't fight like hell for this country, there are elements in our government and foreign interference that's very real that doesn't want this idea of a multifaceted, diverse, thriving America to succeed. And we can't, we have to fight for it. And I can tell you, I was naturalized when I was nine years old. My family fled Colombia. I'm very acutely aware of what happens when we have a deterioration of our judicial system and our media. And in fact, it was the media in Colombia, and it was the integrity for the most part of the judicial system that despite all the chaos, all the lives lost, all the, all the civil rights, uh, civil conflicts of Colombia, it was those two institutions that were the ones that kept the country afloat as a democracy. And at the time, too, when I was, you know, uh, for a long time, those were the two most dangerous jobs for in Colombia, being a reporter and being a judge. And so when we see a government that is going after these two pieces of institutions that maintain our integrity, that not only try to subvert transparency of truth, but also trying to stack the cards against a growing population that is not white, that is uh, disproportionately black and brown and beautiful, we have to make sure that we're fighting for it. Because one of the things that if if, if we have any life lessons of American history is that nothing has been given, right? Uh, But it's this understanding that we aspire to be better and to be more. And that does mean going to the streets. That does mean at the same time, Going not only going to the streets, but running for office and voting. Uh, and it's again, it seems simplistic, but those three ingredients are what have actually made us propel ourselves to change the most. Uh, and that's what she's requiring of us at this moment.
0: Support for Stay Tuned comes from Mint Mobile. If there's one thing that all former U.S. attorneys for the Southern District of New York have in common, it's that we love a good sauce. It's even rumored, although I can't fact-check this, that Ogden Hoffman who served in the position from 1841 to 1845, never ate a meal dry. Now you're probably asking, what does sauce have to do with my cell phone bill? It's because Mint Mobile's secret sauce is that they sell all of their wireless services online. They cut out the cost of retail stores and pass those sweet savings directly to you. For a limited time, their premium wireless plans are just $15 a month when you purchase a three-month plan. To get the new customer offer, and your new three-month unlimited wireless plan for just fifteen bucks a month, you can go to mintmobile.com/preet. That's mintmobile.com/preet. Cut your wireless bill to fifteen bucks a month at mintmobile.com/preet. Forty-five dollar upfront payment required, equivalent to fifteen dollars a month. New customers on first three-month plan only. Speeds slower above forty gigabytes on an unlimited plan. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details. Support for Stay Tuned comes from Squarespace. In this day and age, if you're starting a new project, one of the first things on your to-do list is creating a website. That might seem a bit scary at first, especially if you've never done it before, but there are tools out there that make it easy for anyone to create their own site, like Squarespace. Squarespace is an all-in-one platform that you can use to build a website and help people find your ventures. Creating a website with Squarespace is straightforward and painless even if it's your first time making one. Whether you want to sell your products or a service, or need a place to host your blog or portfolio, Squarespace can help you get your name out there and makes it easy to find on the web. They have plenty of tools to help make your website look pretty great, too, all while customizing it to fit your particular needs. Because your site is your own, and it shouldn't be fit into a one-size-fits-all box. Get the functionality and the unique look that you need Head to squarespace.com slash tuned to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain using code tuned. I want to read another quote to you. I think it was Rick Wilson of the Lincoln Project who said, quote, we go low so you don't have to, <laughs> end quote. <laughs> do you think Do you think that folks like the people of the Lincoln Project are helpful? What's, what's your reaction to the Republicans or the erstwhile Republicans who are supporting Joe Biden.
2: This is, and this is where the difference is. I actually think that what they're doing is not low. They're just being clear. And I wish we would espouse more of that clarity to our audience and that contrast, frankly. I don't know if they're converting anyone, though. That's the challenge, right? And it is our job to try to bring some people along and recognizing that sometimes (laughs) it's like, you know, this is going to be terrible, uh, but you know, your kids are not always going to want to eat their vegetables. And so sometimes you're going to have to figure out how do you bring them along, even though you need them to. And I think the Lincoln project is, is speaking to a reality that will help move some independent voters. I don't know if some staunch Republicans will be moved only because I just don't think people believe it. I think our biggest challenge in this environment is that our media and our consumption, media consumption is so balkanized that even if someone sees what Trump has been saying and you're a Fox viewer and your whole echo chamber is Fox News in that, in that lens, it's going to be really hard to actually believe that that is true.
0: But the theory, the theory seems to be on the part of these folks, and they're not all the same and we have different approaches, Look, if we can peel off, you know, some small percentage of conservatives of Republicans for Joe Biden, that can make all the difference in some of these states. And given what you've said about the Lincoln Project, folks, what do you make of day one of the Democratic National Convention where multiple Republicans, not necessarily part of the Lincoln Project, but multiple Republicans spoke, including John Kasich, who was, you know, trying to get the nomination from the Republican Party not very long ago at all. Is that off-putting? Does that strategy work? Does it make any sense?
2: It has to be a blend of both, right? So, and this is where I go back to the, I don't know what to expect for the last two days, um, I'll be honest, uh, of the convention. But we have to, as a party, recognize that some people will simply will not be converted. And it's good to create a home and the Democratic Party has such a broad tent but what I have really failed to see is an expansion of that electoral base of the people who marched for George Floyd, the people who marched for uh, for gun reform, for the people who have marched for the Women's March. We have not seen that broadening of that base and we need them because Democrats are going to vote. Independents will vote, Republicans will vote, but we have roughly about 123 million Americans that set it out in the last election. And I can tell you from the work that I do at Voto Latino and the work that we work with young voters, you have roughly 25 to 30 million young people that are eligible to participate but haven't registered and haven't voted. But when you talk about the future that they want to espouse, it is the 400 pieces of legislation that Congress passed and that is literally wilting away at the feet of Mitch McConnell. Changing culture Changing this idea that climate change is real, changing uh, someone's perspective on a woman's right to choose, changing someone's belief of LGBTQ as being right, changing someone's view on immigration is really hard to do. But you have tens of millions of American, disproportionately young people, disproportionately Latino, who actually already espouse that worldview. And where we're missing the mark is that we haven't figured out how to close that last mile of getting them to actually register so that they can vote. I can tell you I've been doing this for a very long time. And the Democratic Party, when it comes to the infrastructure of building communities of color and among youth, it's dismal. Um, We just surpassed registering 255,000 voters yesterday. And it was a huge milestone for us because even though we are the leading voter registration outfit in the country for the last three election cycles, the totality of the people that we've had had ever been able to register for was 202,000. But we built an infrastructure and we talk to this community every single day and people are responding. So it's not this lack of, People not wanting to participate is that literally we don't talk to them. And so, what I'd like to see in the last you know two days, whether uh, today and tomorrow, is that expansion, that speaking to those progressive values, that will energize a population that is at the front lines of some some of the worst healthcare and wa- wage loss that we've ever seen, who are desperate for a lifeline, but who also believe in the basic principles that we need to move the country forward. And so it's fine giving the it's fine giving the six of the world a stage so that they can gin up that, you know, the the frequent voter. But you have a whole universe of people that are part of our our worldview that would help move the agenda that we're going to need in the post election. And I don't see that happening. Right. It's nice to see the 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 rising stars that they've that they showcased but these are already elected folks. You could technically buy young people that they're already part of the machine. What about Emma Gonzalez from March for Our Lives? What about, you know, uh, Christina Jimenez from um, from DACA? Like, there are these really energizing young people that are helping us move and forcing us to think differently that we just haven't been seen showcased. And they should be showcased because they bring energy and they bring people.
0: So, so one person who is young, as you mentioned, but is already elected is uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, AOC. Should she have gotten more time, especially in light of I don't mean to keep going back to John Casey, but John Casey came into the convention criticizing you know that you know element of the party, and he got more time than AOC. Is that something we should focus on or just get past?
2: We have to create that platform, and this is the thing, right? I will, and I'm going to speak very bluntly right now because the challenge of giving all of these folks so much airtime—the reason that they're doing it—is because they, the consultants that are advising the DNC, and I'm going to get heat from this, but the consultants—that's
0: <laughs> what we like. We like that.
2: <laughs> I'm going to get to me, but the consultants advising the DNC for the most part are all from the Midwest, and they're older. And they are living living and translating their life experience to the Democratic Party of they like Uncle Joe and Uncle Joe can't possibly be a racist because Uncle Joe and I have Thanksgiving together. Well sometimes you kind of Wait, have to. Uncle
0: figure... Joe, you're not talking about you're not talking about Joe Biden. No,
2: oh shoot, I should use a different okay. name. Oh my God. That was horrible. I was, like, <laughs> I was thinking yeah, of Joe I just, the Plumber. Look, I was actually I'm like, thinking of Joe much... the Plumber. Everyone I'm like, <laughs> I'm like,
0: Maria, how much heat how much heat are you prepared to take on this? Uh, this is an award-winning horror. podcast. Oh my god.
2: No, I was thinking of Joe maybe. the Plumber, you know. But oh, I gosh. want you to do I can want, we want you to redo do that here. <laughs> <laughs> I want
0: you to do here what you what you don't feel comfortable doing on MSNBC. We're just it's just it's just you and me.
2: Yeah. Right. And like some of your best friends right now' <laughs> recording they're like no but but so this is and this is this is a real problem I will share with you that the electoral map and you started seeing the edges of the electoral back shift back in twenty. I would say in 2012 when you saw Virginia go blue and you saw Colorado also loose in 2008 it was in a moment in Nevada as well for that matter it was a moment for the Democrats really to take a step back and look, re reimagine what the path to the White House would look like. And instead, what we've seen in the last three cycles is very much dependent on the Midwest. But this is what's happened since, the, in, since 2010. 2010, we started seeing massive job loss in the Midwest because of manufacturing. And you saw these other spaces in America populating. Yes, you saw the Latino community come of age and you know, in Georgia, North Carolina, Texas, Arizona, But in those states, what you also saw was a transfer of manufacturing and talent go into the South. And so you have almost a perfect storm in the South of what the Midwest used to be in many ways. You have manufacturing coming in, coming in, whether we're talking about the Hollywood, the Hollywood studios in Georgia, you have, you know, Apple and Amazon coming in, in Texas and Toyota. So you see this new group of, of, of jobs coming in. And with that, a lot of young families, a lot of young professionals that have brought in a lot of their, you know, usual Midwestern sensibilities that are now living in the South. And so you have a perfect storm of a new demographic that's not just Latino but, or African American, but layered on a lot of young professionals. But the way we keep running our strategy is as if we were in a very static map. And as a result, we're not making the investments we need in these other states. I'll give you an example. In Texas, we have registered now 137,000 folks. Better or work lost by two hundred thousand. People keep telling us that we've been, that we're wasting our time in Texas. But one thing I do know is that we have two point five million unregistered Latino youth who remember that a president called their families, loved ones, rapists and criminals, and who are also under you know under the regime of Governor Abbott, where they feel uncomfortable just to go outside to feel safe. And so, if the Democrats would would bring in consultants and cultural competency in these different nuances and how to take a refreshed look at the map, maybe they'll yes, they'll give Kasich some time, but then they'll also give they'll give time on the platform to a new rising electorate that looks much more of the future of America that can that's going to be eligible to cast a ballot for the very first time this year.
0: When do you think is the earliest likelihood? that Texas could actually vote for a Democrat for president? Could it happen this year?
2: This election? Yep. So we've been working in Texas for 2010. So this is not the flavor of the month for me. (laughs) I take long game, right? So in 2010, I started frequenting uh, Texas because we were visiting my in-laws. And that's when I started just looking around at the demographics and then also getting more uh, better understood the politics of Governor Abbott and of Rick Perry and it is the perfect storm that we saw in Colorado against the Latino community in Trincado. It's the same perfect storm that we saw with Sheriff Arpaio in Arizona. The, the challenge, and this is where people say, well, Latinos don't vote. It's, it's not that we don't vote. It's that we are so young that we're aging in. We have a million young Latinos turning 18 every year for the next decade. Pre- that, that tsunami of Latinos started in 2016. And it just so happens that 25% of all eligible Latino youth live in Texas and their first generation. And they're concerned because they have a hostile person in government. And in the midterm election in 2018, for the very first time, Texas went from a dead last voter participation state in like 25 years to 41st in a midterm. That jump was driven by young people and by Latinos. So the challenge in Texas is not that people aren't paying attention, they are underwater. Texas to me is more akin to my life experience of growing up in California under Pete Wilson, where Pete Wilson was the origin- originator of show me your paper laws. Where I came back from college and during Thanksgiving and told my aunts and my grandmother and my uncle to become U.S. citizens, uh, because we were because I was concerned for their safety.
3: They keep coming, two million illegal immigrants in California. The federal government won't stop them at the border
0: yet requires us to pay billions to take care of them.
2: That conversation I had with my family, millions of other of my of my peer group was having it across California. Those are the conversations now that we're having in Texas. The difference is that they don't have to become United United States citizens. They skip the step. They can just need to, they just, they are citizens. They need to register. They need to vote and they're responding.
0: Let's talk more about young people because it's the conventional wisdom that there's lots of young people that have become more active lately, but they still don't really vote. They vote on lower percentages than older people. Is that changing? Is it different in the Latino community? How do you how do you think about actual turnout among young people?
2: So for the very first time in 2018, generation X, Y and Z outvoted older voters. And pre, I finally was able to actually own my generation or <laughs> do <did> something good. <laughs> <laughs> and and that was because it was two years of protest right after Donald Trump. And there was a constant reminder of to young people that things were not right and they were feeling it. And this is, you know, someone in the White House that doesn't espouse their values. Quite frankly, I was concerned that that energy would be lost between the 2018 election and 2020. Um, but what those young, what young people were able to, to do was they voted in the most diverse Congress in our nation's history. And when people ask, you know, why does diversity matter? Then you look at the legislation that they espouse and that they passed. So we had the most women, the most uh, Asian Americans, the most LGBTQ, the most veterans, for that matter. And we ended up passing 400 pieces of legislation that espouse our values, that talk about gun reform, that talk about immigration reform, that talk about health care, that talk about fair wages. And the list goes on now we need to make sure that young people are as engaged and as mobilized to finish the job to give a senate to president biden so that we can get the work that needs to be done in a coherent fast we need fast uh, i keep saying that we're in a moment where we have to break the, the emergency glass to get the country back in order but the disconnect preet is that the investments that happen in organizations like color of change in organizations that happen like in rock the vote and in Vote Latino is dismal compared to a $3 billion campaign. I'll share with you, in 2016, people kept talking about how the, the Latino vote was the most important vote to capture. Us as organizations collectively that do this work received a total of $11 million. We have been able to reconstruct how we do the work targeting young Latinos this election cycle. And I'm pleased to say that we have at Latino, we have raised $16 million to register voters and turn them out. But that has been 18 years of knocking on doors and convincing people that this is where the opportunity lies. Um, There's no other marketplace, so to speak, to sell democracy except among young people. So for the first time, we'll have 12 million more young people than baby boomers. Two thirds of them who are young people of color, four million of them who happen to be Latino. When you look at the Latino community and remove the four million that I mentioned, we have 11 million Latinos that are un, that are unregistered. 60% of them who are under the age of 33. So it's it's opportunity. It's a marketing opportunity, right? The and they and young people happen to reside not in the Midwest, uh, but in the coasts and in the middle of the country and towards the south. So let's let's think differently on how we can engage them.
1: Just go to ConstantContact.com right now. Constant Contact, helping the small stand tall. ConstantContact.com.
0: When you talk about the Latino vote and how important it is, it's not monolithic. Like they're not all voting for Democrats. You speak of the 1 million Latinos who are turning 18 in Texas. Is it your expectation that they're gonna be overwhelmingly Democratic? How do you describe across the country how the Latino vote breaks down and how that's trending.
3: So
2: I sleep really well at night, Preet. Uh, <laughs>
0: <laughs> at least, at least you do.
2: <laughs> well, you know, uh, no, uh, it's interesting. The older generation of Latinos are the ones that have really espoused more conservative values and that younger, younger folks, if you've been here one generation, two generations trend very much more on the on the progressive side. So at Voto Latino, we end up registering roughly, and, and we include independents because independents, uh, more young people are identifying as independents, and but they espouse very progressive values. So roughly, of the people that we register, roughly about eighty five percent of the people we register are uh, independent uh, and democratic, and about fifteen percent, the other fifteen percent, are Republican. And we've seen a trend because that was not the case when we started 15 years ago. So we have seen a trend on the people we registering becoming even more progressive. And that explains, I think, also to the, the generation and the time of how people have changed. I mean, we we broke barriers pre- when Voto Latino, we were the first organization 14 years ago to recognize climate change among the Latino community. We were the first to talk about choice. We were the first to talk about gun reform. We were first to, to espouse and bring DACA DACA when they were DREAMers before they were DREAMers together and actually provide them their first campaign to register other voters. Um, But that, that reflect, it wasn't that we were innovative, that we were just reflecting a constituency that was coming up and not really being recognized for their differences um, among the Latino community.
0: Can I ask you a question about the organization, which does amazing, terrific work that you've been talking about? And I'd like to hear more about it. Voto Latino as I understand it, the first time that it endorsed a nominee for president was was this cycle, Joe Biden. Mm-hmm. Why not before?
2: Because I deeply believe that the way a community gets their best policies is by having parties fight for us. And it was... Prior to Trump, I mean, I guess you could ask me. Well, you know, should we have endorsed Hillary Clinton? Um, that was
0: my. That was actually my implicit question. you were going to ask me. Um, I will yeah.
2: tell you that it hurt my heart that we did not. Quite frankly, because what I did know two weeks out before the election was that. Donald Trump uh, had, despite the polls. I mean, I was on Meet the Press two weeks before, uh, and Amy Walters and Mark Halperin just jumped on me when I basically said that Donald Trump had a path to victory. Well, and I think Absolutely. one of the things that we're not talking about with Donald Trump, he's low on the polls, but I actually think that we can expect almost a Bradley surprise, meaning that there's a lot of a lot of folks that may not feel that they want to publicly say in polls yeah. that they want to vote for him, but when they get behind that, between when it's between them and the box, they actually might pull out I, I, I don't. I don't. I don't. Buy that yet. I mean we've not seen any evidence of that in the primaries people who said they're going to vote for Donald Trump voted for him, and the people that were saying are saying that we're hearing I'm not going to vote for donald Trump they're Republicans and my worst my worst nightmare came true and the challenge of election day the day after was that at both Latino, we had to go from providing voter registration information to suicide prevention hotlines uh, because we were seeing our audiences distraught they had you know they had there were seven hundred thousand that had given their private information to a federal database and they felt that they had put their families in jeopardy, uh, with this administration. And so, you know, my mother oftentimes tells me, you know, you never look back, you just move forward. Um, but at the time, given the information that I knew when we first started paying attention to the polls, it looked like she was going to win. Um, not recognizing how much election interference there was and how the margins were, um, were beat, but they were beat in the Midwest, right? So I think, if anything, what I've done with the organization stuff, we've doubled down on the South because we deeply believe that there's an opportunity. But we endorsed Joe Biden for the first time because we also saw kind of a repeat of what we saw in 2016, where we didn't expect so many of the people in the Bernie Sanders campaign to sit it out, quite frankly, and we just expected that they would they would vote for him for her. And when we saw that, we were seeing at least among the young Latinos, the the same trend. That's why we endorsed. Uh, and we, you know, we took heat, but but we've been able to explain positions and now we're able to highlight the the good stuff that he is espousing that will help provide relief and opportunity to to not just Latinos but to the American uh to American people. Um but yeah but it was it was tough. That was that was a tough call.
0: Do you think that the Democratic Party has largely taken the Latino vote for granted, for example, going back to the convention, I think it's the case that Julian Castro, former guest of this podcast, not given, so we like him very much, not given a speaking slot, is that a slap in the face?
2: It, it is because, and this is, goes back to understanding communities and the Latino community, we are-
0: And, and the Midwestern, the Midwestern consultants.
2: <laughs> no, I, I think that we all, as Americans, have skin in the game. Uh, to get this guy out of office. But I don't think that folks, unless they are of immigrant roots as well, uh, really understand the anxiety and fear that Latinos wake up with every single morning when they step out the door. There, we have 11 million uh, Latino uh, undocumented folks that live in the shadows, but they live in 16 million American households. And When we go out the door, when our sons and daughters go out the door and they and we have a man who has demonized and blanketed us as all un-American for the color of our skin, there is a real anxiety that, yes, we will be police profiled and ICE profiled, but then that our neighbors will profile us and can cause us harm. The realization that happened in El Paso last year where a man was inspired by Donald Trump and he decided to get into a vehicle and drive 10 hours to a city that is 85% Latino and who is that is one of the safest cities in the country was to send a message to us that none of us were safe being Latino in this country because that man was in Texas and he could have done the exact same thing by driving across town and caused harm to Latinos in his community, but he wanted to send a maximum message. And so that is, I think the the challenge of not having representation on that stage is also not having representation of the pain that, that the community is enduring and to speak to that in a real way, that when we look at COVID cases and we talk about, you know, who are essential workers and who is dying of COVID, the Latino community, sadly, we are that mantle, we are taking that charge and we are exposing our families in ways that most Americans don't have to because we live in intergenerational households. And so it is a it's not that it's a slap in the face it's it's almost a misunderstanding of why we need this we need to correct this country and that it's going to be through the Latino community and it's recognizing the real pain that we're feeling because of what this administration has caused. His rhetoric has turned into policy and in some cases, a, a call to arms to individuals to harm us.
0: What do you think the Kamala Harris selection for VP means for the Latino community? What's been the reaction?
2: So I've known Kamala for a very long time. Uh, she was one of the first people that actually uh, listened to me when we were starting with a Latino. So she's a longtime friend. I've, you know, I am Thrilled to see her on the ticket uh, because I think that she is a refreshing choice. I know that the South Asian community is over the moon, as they should be. My daughter is over the moon. We are, <laughs> she is, you know. Um, uh, and it is, and it's beautiful, and it's wonderful. And I think that it also is a bridge to the Latino community. The way she speaks and connects of her relationship with her mother, her mother's expectation of her, and Maya, her sister, are no less expectations of which I grew up in and millions of Latinos grew up in. And that is, she is able to to speak to even the nuance that I just mentioned before of the pain often happening in this administration in the Latino community and immigrant communities um, is important. And it is exciting. And I think that she will help energize the ticket in a way that before people didn't feel like they were being seen or heard.
0: Are you worried about that energy and excitement? I, I think it's the case that something like 58 percent of Democrats say they're voting for Joe Biden more because they want to vote against Trump than affirmatively supporting Biden.
2: Are, are, are you worried about that? I'm worried about I'm, I'm worried about that that excitement As it translates to low propensity voters, as it translates to unregistered voters, because Democrats we're taking very much a pragmatic look at this election. Right, it's it's recognizing that four more years of of Donald Trump is not sustainable for our families, for our community, for our states, for our country, for the world. And I don't, and I deeply believe that. Uh, But it's for the folks that are on the margins uh, that concerns me, and we have to figure out how to reach out to them because. If anybody has a lot on the line, it's the ones it's, you know, it's our fellow Americans that don't participate because to their, to their credit, they don't feel the country has changed for them for the better. And they are busy trying to survive and they're busy trying to make ends meet. And this idea of politics in an election is the last thing on their mind because it doesn't remedy their situation immediately.
0: I mean, I I wonder sometimes what's more important this time around, is it excitement or is it unity? My sense is that there's more unity now, and the reason for so much unity happens to be a shared view that Donald Trump has to go. You know, people have noted that Bernie Sanders' speech this time around was a lot more conciliatory and supportive of the nominee than it was last time. And maybe that's because, you know, Bernie and his supporters felt, you know, they weren't given a fair shake last time, and it was much closer last time. Does it matter why they're unified? (laughs) Is, Is it enough just to be unified against Donald Trump?
2: Again, I think for for the Democrats and, and the independent, yes, I think that that we need to be unified. I think that this this president has uh, his strategy is division. It's you know he he is a one trick pony when it talks about racism, and it's no longer you know whistles of being racist and disparaging to. 40% of Americans that live here, right? So when people talk about people of color um, and they, the labeless minorities, pre- I, drives me bananas. Very few things can get under my skin. That gets me under my skin. We're talking about 135 million of us and we're not small. And so this unity is something that is desperately needed because you, you mentioned tribalism before. His Trump's currency is tribalism. His currency is divisiveness. And he does that because it gives him great opportunity to pillage the coffers. And while we are trying to point out our differences, he is he's making money hand over fist and ruining our institutions. And so the unity, I think, is also desperately wanted. I think that's why the whole casting of the delegate vote, as it was, from C to, from C to count, what is it? I can't even say the word. C to shining <laughs> so C. She, thank you, C to shining C. That's where my ESL comes out, by I'm, the way. I'm pre- naturalized <laughs> too. I was nat-
0: I was naturalized at 12.
2: Oh, okay, yeah. Three so years older it. than you. I, no, but you I remember <laughs> C,
0: C to shining C, I think, was probably on the test. Yeah,
2: so, uh, well, I was God, I was grandfather. And I didn't
0: have to take yeah, the I test. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> no, no me, me, me too. I was joking about the
2: test. Uh, but no, but I, I always try to make American idioms and I, I lose. And that's when people know that I'm ESL. <laughs> uh, anyway. <laughs>
0: There's a huge challenge for every community now, and that is COVID. And with your work for Voto Latino, registering people and then trying to make sure that they get out there and the whole controversy that everyone has been talking about with the post office and mail-in voting... How are you dealing with those challenges and what is the reaction with the people that you are working with to get people to have confidence in voting? Do you expect most of the people you're registering are going to vote by mail or try to go to the polls in person? Just explain what's going on.
2: That's yeah, that's a great question. So 79 percent of the people that we register vote. So we're really good at getting them out. Our challenge, though, is now breaking it down. We did a poll with Latino Decisions and the Voter Participation Project at the end of June, trying to get the pulse of the community. And we found that 75% of the voters in battleground states that we polled were concerned about voting under COVID. And 59% had never voted by mail. So we have a bit of a double whammy. And then the last one, the I would say a triple whammy is that similar to the Black community, Latinos don't trust putting something in the post office, they'd rather see their ballot be put in a box. And so one of the things, the efforts that Voto Latino is doing is that we are launching a massive communications campaign. Uh, We've never done this before, uh, but we see that we really need an educational campaign to target low propensity voters. As of June, close to uh, 57% of registered Latinos had not been contacted by any political candidate or campaign of compared to 59% of Latino Trump voters who had. So there is a big gap. And so our job is with this expansion, this $10 million expansion budget is to do specific communications around vote by mail and about the stanchity of the vote and making sure people are informed. Uh, what we would like to see is the $3.7 billion that's currently allocated in the HEROES, uh, Heroes Act. We'd like to see that passed. So that it provides states with the resources to do vote by mail, but also to provide poll workers with PPE and making sure that they are implementing safe in-line voting on the day of elections. Um, I'm part of the National Election Crisis Task Force. I'm there so you don't have to be. Um, It's a bipartisan program. (laughs) My goodness. Um, it's a bipartisan task force you know michael chertoff is part of it for example uh, the former homeland security secretary for bush and we started looking at this back in january before the pandemic and you know what were going what were going to be the obstacles of a fair uh, a fair election and covid just added a different layer and so it is because of that that we are we are targeting education education we know that when Latinos see a message specifically directing to them, and this is a study that we did uh, with Google back in February, but we know that when Latinos see a PSA that's specifically targeted with to them by a brand that they trust in Voto Latino, they were nine times more likely to to search out voter registration information. So using nine that, times, nine times, nine times, and if they why
0: such a huge difference
2: because no one talks to us literally no i mean in the last two election cycles 49% of registered latinos never received a contact from a political campaigner or candidate
0: 49% so why why is the party so stupid
2: they have, to, they have to modernize. So you and I are both naturalized citizens. For the very first time this election, one out of 10 voters are going to be nat- naturalized citizens. They are disproportionately new voters, right? They don't have a history of voting. You couple that with knowing that 60% of Latinos are under the age of 33. They also don't have a voting record. So they've only voted once. And so the way the system works right now is that the Democrats and the Republicans look at high propensity voters and they target them. By default, that means you're targeting older white voters uh, and African Americans, older white African Americans. You're not targeting the tens of millions of young voters under the age of 33, which is technically your lifeblood if you were to target them. And you're not targeting naturalized citizens, which are also um, a couple of million. So it is the mechanics of how they. They have to change, and so that's where Voto Latino. That's really where we step in with our work because we know that no one's going to talk to them uh, because they don't have a history of voting. But you know, Doug Jones, if he, if you recall his his address and his thank you, he thanked Black voters, he thanked Latino voters. <laughs> Right. Uh, And his his delivery. (laughs) And it was because he did it right. He did not leave a voter on the table. He worked very closely with NAACP and the human rights campaign. And they called shocking. They called every voter. And that is the strategy that we should be espousing uh, on a more progressive front.
0: No voter left behind. Right.
2: No voter left behind because these are the voters that they sync up with our values.
0: Um, Before we go, can you tell folks if they want to get involved in Voto Latino or contribute or help in some way? How they can do that?
2: Yeah, if they want to, if they want to volunteer, they are free to volunteer at seven three one seven nine. Uh, we have now trained over four thousand volunteers, but more importantly, those volunteers since COVID uh, have reached over six hundred thousand registered voters in key battleground states, all through SMS and relational organizing. So you can do it from the comfort of your house, wearing your slippers. Text volunteer to seven three one seven nine. Uh, if they want to donate for every Every $18 donated to Voto Latino, not only do we register the voter, but we also get them to the polls. Uh, so if they, they would like to do that, they can go to VotoLatino.org. Um, and if they have to register, please register at VotoLatino.org. Maria
0: Teresa Kumar, thanks for spending time with us. Really appreciate it.
2: And this is wonderful. Thanks so much for all that you do, It was a pleasure.
0: My conversation with Maria Teresa Kumar continues for members of the Cafe Insider community consider becoming a cafe insider you can try it out free for two weeks at cafe.com slash insider insiders get bonus stay tuned content the exclusive weekly podcast i co-host with ann milgram the cyberspace podcast with john carlin the united security podcast co-hosted by lisa monaco and ken Weinstein, audio essays by ellie honig and me and more again to get a two-week free trial head to cafe.com slash insider that's cafe.com slash insider This week marks the centennial of the 19th Amendment's ratification. Ratified on August 18, 1920, the 19th Amendment declared that the right to vote, quote, shall not be denied or abridged by the United States or by any state on account of sex, end quote. For many reasons, this day is a celebration. We have come so far with respect to women's rights, but the story of women's suffrage is also complicated as it often overlooks the work of many women who fought for the right to vote but were excluded from its benefits Because of their race. Dr. Martha S. Jones is a professor of history at Johns Hopkins University and the author of Vanguard How Black Women Broke Barriers, Won the Vote, and Insisted on Equality for All. She's telling the stories of Black women who shaped the suffrage movement and fought for equality, but were left out of the prevailing historical narratives.
3: The suffrage movement gets right the fundamental idea. That sex should have no relationship to political rights or political power in the United States. This is a movement that looks to expand American democracy, to include an important portion of the body politic that had been disenfranchised, silenced, um, and really didn't have a seat at the table in American politics. The suffrage movement also suffers from an important shortcoming, and that shortcoming is its relationship to racism, anti Black racism. Really, from the outset of the movement, American suffragists struggled with their own personal prejudices, but more importantly, they struggled with how to build a political movement that represented itself as speaking for American women writ large but actually was deeply ambivalent about opening the door to African-American women in American politics. As the movement goes forward and suffragists determine that it's important to bring white Southerners into the movement, to win the support of Southerners, white Southerners in the movement, a deep compromise will result And African-American women will be asked to stand at the margins, will be excluded. But most importantly, their political interests will be jettisoned in a bargain that leads to the ratification of the 19th Amendment. African-American women will be kept from the polls just like their fathers and their husbands have been kept from the polls by state laws that are used to keep Black Americans away from Election Day, poll taxes, literacy tests, understanding clauses, and nothing in the 19th Amendment, by design, nothing in the 19th Amendment interferes with the ability of Southern states to continue to use those laws to now keep Black women from exercising the vote.
0: Black leaders in the suffrage movement were often excluded from movement rallies, meetings, and events in order to appease white Southerners. Ida B. Wells, Writer, civil rights leader, and co-founder of the NAACP, was one of them.
3: March of 1913, um, Alice Paul and a somewhat renegade crew of women associated with the National American Women's Suffrage Party uh, convene a parade in Washington, D.C., on Pennsylvania Avenue. They call the parade for... Um, the eve of Woodrow Wilson's inauguration, and they are looking to draw dramatic attention to the cause of women's votes. African-American women earlier in the planning had been invited to participate, but as the meeting drew close, Alice Paul and the other organizers get pushback, particularly from white Southern women who object to sharing the day, sharing the parade, sharing their political lives with African American women. But African American women do uh, attend. Probably three dozen or so of them come to make plain that they are going to steer their own political futures. And sometimes that means taking part in a meeting or a parade where you're not welcome. Ida B. Wells from Chicago is one of the African American women who comes to Washington to participate in the parade. She travels with a contingent of white suffragists from that city who have been her allies, her comrades in the struggle for women's votes. By 1913, women in Illinois um, have gotten the vote to an important degree and are really becoming major political players. So Wells comes and when she arrives is advised that she's going to be asked to march not with the Illinois delegation, but with a contingent to the rear of the parade. And Wells is deeply hurt by this announcement, so much so that many people fear she won't march at all. But once the parade is underway that morning, uh, Wells will step out from the crowd, enter the parade already in motion, and link arms with two of the white suffragists with whom she's traveled from Chicago and complete the parade route alongside them. It's a moment that illustrates Ida Wells' genius and tenacity. That's very important. It's a moment that reminds us that there were, particularly in local circles, there were instances in which black and white suffragists worked alongside one another. That was true for Wells in Chicago. But it is also true, and perhaps the bigger truth is that the marginalization of Wells and other Black women in that parade is one sign of what's on the horizon, which is an increasingly rude bargain that will sacrifice Black women and their political interests in the interests of building another sort of coalition, a white coalition. It is that coalition that will lead to to the ratification of the 19th Amendment in 1920.
0: The stories and names we now think of as defining the suffrage movement leave out the narratives of the Black women leaders who fought alongside people like Susan B. Anthony and Alice Paul. How did this happen?
3: Suffragists like Susan Anthony and Elizabeth Cady Stanton are deliberate in foregrounding themselves and their contributions to the long quest for women's voting rights. They publish a multi-volume, nearly 6,000-page history of women's suffrage and place themselves and their allies at the center. So when we ask, how is it that we've overlooked or forgotten or aren't as familiar with um, some stories, particularly the stories of African-American women, well, this is because if you will, the first history was written by participants who privileged their own roles and their own importance. African-American women are organized all throughout the movement for women's rights and women's suffrage going back to the early decades of the 19th century. They will organize in anti-slavery societies, in churches, in civil rights organizations, in sororities, most importantly, perhaps in the National Association of Colored Women, which is founded in 1896 and is really a companion organization to the major women's suffrage associations, African American women never organize in suffrage associations, or they rarely do, I should say, uh, because their political agenda is importantly far more ambitious. African American women are working simultaneously for the vote while they are also working, for example, to win anti lynching legislation in Congress. And so a suffrage association, particularly suffrage associations that are Reluctant, if not opposed to grappling with racism, are not an easy or a comfortable home for African-American women. So one of the things uh, that I had to do in my work was stop looking so hard at the suffrage associations and follow African-American women to where they actually were and where they were doing their work. And we find them in the NACW, the National Association of Colored Women. We find them in Black Methodist and Baptist churches. Uh, we find them in civil rights organizations like the NAACP. And so telling the story of African-American women in the vote requires that we do a, a different kind of investigation and then listen to Black women. And it turns out they are as interested in, concerned about, committed to their own political power as any community of American women. They're just doing that work on their own terms.
0: So why all this effort to continue to suppress the Black vote? What's the fear? What would change if communities of color had equal and fair access to voting power?
3: This is why the example from 1920 is so Uh, illuminating. In 1920, yes, anti-Black racism is underneath the effort to keep Black women from the polls. But there's a nuance to that. That effort is being led by white Democrats who expect that if Black women register, if they come to the polls, they will, the vast majority of them, support Republican Party candidates. And so what white Democrats fear is that they won't be able to keep their power, particularly in the American South, if Black Americans, including Black women, are disenfranchised. White women are expected to split right? and, if you will, vote like their husbands and their fathers. It's a terribly sexist way to frame it, but that is the language of 1920. But Black American women are expected to come out and vote as a block and really change the game for the Republican Party? Well, here we sit in 2020, and we know African-American women continue to vote as a block in this country. Now, today they vote for the Democratic Party, not the Republican Party, but the fears remain the same, that when Black women are able to turn out, they won't split as white American women did, for example, in 2016, that they will vastly vote Democratic and have the ability to shift the outcome, not only in a presidential contest, that is important, but everyone knows the ways in which the weight of those votes can change local and state level elections. And so there is a very deliberate political purpose to keeping People like Black women from the polls precisely because they vote as a bloc. They will enhance the power of the Democratic Party in 2020. This is the fear. Um, This is the purpose of voter suppression.
0: Despite the setbacks and the challenges in front of us, there is much to celebrate. The choice of Senator Kamala Harris as candidate for vice president marks a new era for women of color in American politics.
3: I thought it was historic, but I want to say why. Many people have commented on Senator Harris as a first. And I actually think the era of firsts is quickly behind us. And what we're seeing is the force of Black women, of women of color in American politics writ large. Part of what is remarkable about Senator Harris's nomination is that she was part of a pool that included six Black women, and they weren't cookie-cutter figures at all. They were very different in their experience, in their expertise, in even their position on the issues. This, to me, is a sign of women of color becoming a force in American politics, and not simply shattering glass ceilings or chalking up firsts. So alongside Senator Harris are somewhere between 120 and 130 Black women running for Congress. That is a force. Those are not firsts any longer. And so I want us to appreciate that we've entered a new chapter in American politics. It's one that Black women have worked especially hard for since only 1965 when the Voting Rights Act is passed, but have worked deliberately for, have built toward, have readied themselves for such that when this country gets ready for Black women in politics, it turns out there's not one or two or three, right? There are a half dozen and probably more that we could name who would have been forceful, right? running mates for Joe Biden. I think we're in a a new moment historically, and I'm extremely excited for what this generation of women will do in Washington after they are elected in November.
0: Well, that's it for this episode of Stay Tuned. Thanks again to my guests, Maria Teresa Kumar and Martha Jones. Your host is Preet Bharara. The executive producer is Tamara Sepper. The senior producer is Adam Waller. The senior audio producer is David Tattashore. And the cafe team is Matthew Billy, David Kurlander, Sam ozer Noah Azulai, Nat Wiener, Jake Kaplan, Calvin Lord, Jeff Eisenman, Chris Boylan, Sean Walsh, and Margot Malley. Our music is by Andrew Dost. I'm Preet Bharara. Stay tuned.